You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is Paige Weiniger, and I've been going to Free City for about two years now with my husband, Troy. Um, We serve on the greeting team, so you might have seen us outside saying hi in the morning. Um, It's a great way to meet people and to just welcome people as they're coming in. So even if you're an introvert like me, you should join the the greeting team. Um, And we also just started a new city group. It's the Stuart Weiniger City Group. And... (laughs) And we meet on Mondays from 6 to 8, so if you are looking for a group, we would love to have you. And um, yeah, come talk to Troy or Spencer or me or Amber after church. Um, This morning, we're going to be in Matthew 11, 2 through 19, and it can be found on page 765. Matthew 11, 2 through 19. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesy as unto John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father God, um, we come to you this morning and just thank you for this time of fellowship together. Um, We just thank you for your word and for just the teachings that it shows us. Um, We pray for just the sermon this morning and just thank you for Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, who allows us to come to him even in our sinfulness. Um, I just pray that we are able to hear what you want us to hear from the sermon this morning and open our hearts to ways to put this into action this week. Um, I pray for Central and for just all the teachers and kids that are in this in this building. I know that this is a really tough year for teachers and families, and I just pray that you strengthen them to make good choices and to um, be bold in their faith, um, just share the gospel with their students and families, um, and just 
allow your yoke to be put upon them and take off their yoke for your yoke is easy and light and we just can't do this without you God so just allow the teachers to come to you in that way um, I just pray for free city and the opportunities that we have here um, just allow us to continue to be here and blessing the teachers and children in the school and I just pray that um, the peace of you is in these hallways and that um, our, our children and teachers are able to just come to know you while we are here. And that's all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, uh, we are in a series uh, that's uh, not, not a normal series for us. We usually just work through books of the Bible. Um, our normal pattern is uh, we'll do... Uh, like a gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, um, and then we'll jump to an epistle. Um, and sometimes we go through those kind of thematically, so we're not in the gospel of John for, you know, three years. Um, and not, not, when we leave stuff out, it's not because it's unimportant, it's just because uh, we want to keep moving. Um, and then we'll jump to the Old Testament, um, and we'll do uh, either wisdom out of the Old Testament or one of the prophets or something from the Pentateuch, and we've been in all those places. Uh, but this, uh, this series, uh, Jesus, Joy, and Sinners, uh, we're jumping around mostly in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, and we're trying to look at what is the heart of God like toward us? What is, what is God like, like for us? And so we're in this and we're jumping around. We, we kind of, uh, we're actually ripping most of it off from this book, which we want to give to you. Uh, we got a, like 200 or more of these free books, and uh, for a moment I thought about reselling it to make money because we're just a poor church. Uh, but, but we decided against it before we saw, do not, you know, not for resale. Before we saw it, we decided against it. And so these are um, out in the back um, at the information table, and it's a free book. And so Oprah Winfrey style, like you get a book, you get a book all around. Um, and man, we really want you to take that. Uh, it's something that you could add uh, into your life transformation group. And so a life transformation group is a small group, uh, two or three guys, two or three girls, um, that come together for accountability to fight sin, accountability to read the scriptures, and then accountability to focus on whatever. And we want you in this season to focus on the heart of God, especially seen in the person of Jesus. We want you to be surprised. You know, when we talk about uh, why Free City exists, like we, we exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and what that means, what you see here often, is you see a lot of scriptures used throughout this service because we put our hope to know God through the scriptures. It's not the only way, like the Holy Spirit can come and, and lead and indwell, but it's the primary way that we can know the heart of God. And so constantly you see us holding up like a polarity, like on one side, we'll say, we bring darkness for the light of Jesus. We bring brokenness for his wholeness. Like we bring evil for his holiness. We bring our lying tongue for his truthfulness. Like we bring like a bitterness for his friendship. Like the plurality of the difference between us and God. The very best of us is this great chasm that we want to point to the person of Jesus because he stepped in to cross that chasm. There is now a way to be found with God again. 
And this morning, we're focusing on one word that describes that way, and that word is friendship. Like, like that word is not like, you know, the gladiator of old. I'm not talking like the gladiator of way, way old, you know. I'm talking about the gladiator of like the late 90s where you had like nitro, and you had to try to get through the obstacle course. I'm not talking about that at all. Like, it's not something that God has set up where he's like, only the best of you might make it. It's this road that he would say, enter in and know the friendship of my heart. And so we come to this phrase, and actually before I get there, this is something we're so terrible at. Oh man, we're so terrible at this. We're so terrible about celebrating things. And so, like, we're fun. Like, don't get me wrong, we're fun. Uh, but we're terrible at taking moments and just celebrating things. And so if you've been with us for a while, um, you know some of this story. But it was uh, around the holidays, man, just kind of, I've been meditating on Philippians 4, just for the solace of my, my soul. And uh, God started to kind of work on me. He kind of, kind of started to say this. Like, I felt like he was saying, like, hey, we should take a month aside and try to raise $100,000. So if God opens the door to buy a building, you know, if we do that for a few years or whatever, we might have money to, to buy a building because we were, we were on like a, almost a year of just a pilgrimage homelessness where we had, you know, when everything happened, we jumped into podcasts because all we had were microphones. And I mean, that was, that was cool. Um, and then we jumped into house churches and we were videoing and then we were in a parking lot and, uh, you know, we had all this team to surround the kids so we didn't crush them with cars. And then we were across town on Sunday night uh, in another church and we just felt homeless. And so I just thought, man, that sounds great. Well, I started praying about that and just started, you know, talking to other people about it. Not a lot of people, but just like, man, what do you think about that? And people were like, yeah, I mean, that's just wisdom. I mean, I was wondering when you guys would do something wise, you know, I mean, just wise. And then um, I was in Colorado, and I get a call from David Taylor. David and Monica Taylor are uh, some missionaries, some friends that have planted a church in Fethiye, Turkey, that we support. It's one of our largest uh, single-item uh, mission things that we do. I mean, we just love them. We're proud to be their friends. And I got a call from him. We'll text back and forth, but we don't necessarily like, talk on the phone a whole lot. And he, uh, I, I answered it because I just felt special. You know, I was like, oh, call from Turkey. I mean, this is a pretty big deal, y'all. Um, and so uh, I answered it, and he, uh, he just kind of starts to unfold the story. And he just says, man, we, uh, man, missionaries, foreign missionaries, and pastors can get kicked out of the country left and right. And uh, we've been in this building. We have an opportunity to buy it. If we buy a building of $250,000 or a piece of property of $250,000 or more, uh, we basically get automatic citizenship. We go right to the front of the line. And so a lot of countries have kind of a pay-to-play type thing, and, and Turkey's is pretty cheap. And so, man, I just, he tells me this. I just start laughing and crying at the same time because I was like, David, man, like two months ago, God put on my heart that we should try to raise like $100,000 to buy a building. I just thought it was our building. And um, so we uh, presented that to you in May, and we did a month emphasis on really pushing. And, you know, I, we didn't necessarily through a GoFundMe because it had to go to them. Um, in between just the church's gift and your all's generous gifts, I mean, we raised around $100,000, and then we presented that to other churches and other people, and uh, we just crossed the $300,000 mark. And, um, and so, yeah, that's cool. Oh, I feel, we should all get tattoos or something, you know? 
but yeah, we want to celebrate that. And so what you're going to see is we're, there's going to be a celebration video just kind of describing that. And then there's going to be a breakdown of where all the money's going. And he's providing for our CPA um, and, and for us just uh, as, the, as the receipts come in, just to line that up uh, so we can see where that goes. And so, man, we just want to, we just want to thank God. Like, we just want to thank God that we can be a part of it. And so I'm going to do that right now. Uh, I'm just going to pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, man, we just want to say thank you. Like, we want to say thank you that uh, we got to be a part of something like that. And not just us, like, believers all over the place. Lord, I'm thankful for Cross Point Church in Poto, Oklahoma. Jason, my friend who just saw what we were doing, reached out. And, Lord, they gave a generous gift. Lord, I'm thankful for so many people here who gave generously. Um, And Lord, we will never know. We won't know until eternity comes to pass and we get to be there. We won't know all the stories that we get to be a part of when we just said, Lord, this is a gift to you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would feel the joy and your pleasure of just being a part where we took some of our treasure, some of the things that are so hard for us to part with sometimes, and we just said, this is for you, Jesus. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that we would feel that joy and pleasure um, just of that. And, Lord, it's, it's an honor to be a part of something like that. Um, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so that's, that's exciting. Uh, Matthew 11. Um, and so we've been in Matthew 11 before. Ethan just preached the back part of Matthew 11. We're jumping to the front part. And so we're going to see this kind of in, in totality. And you might be asking why we didn't go in order, and part of it was I just really, when Ethan was scheduled to preach, just some of his personal story in meditating on that was just so important to come through. But but Matthew 11, this tells us something very, very important. It's telling us that we are in great, great danger. Matter of fact, I I think it outlines like three dangers that even mature believers, like the maturest and strongest of believers, find ourselves in. Like we are in great danger. There are warnings for us. But at the same time, it tells us that we have a great friend. We have a great friend in the person of Jesus the second person of the triune God who entered in to come put his arm around the brokenness of humanity and to walk us forward. A a great friend who doesn't say, clean yourselves up, be presentable, and then I might put my arm around you. A great friend who reaches down to get with us, to put his arm around us, to lift us up and to carry us to the presence of God himself. Great warning, great danger, and a great friend. And so this morning, we're going to look at three warnings and then this super awesome, like, truth that we should get really excited about. Uh, So three warnings, and the warnings are this, about suffering and doubt, number one, uh, offense and blindness, number two, and then an insatiable uh, expectation that's just never satisfied, number three. Those are the warnings we see here. And then we see this title that was given by Jesus' enemies to defame him, Jesus. Friend of tax collectors and sinners that has become maybe the hallmark of who Jesus is. God, Jesus, friend of sinners. And so, let's just get started. And so the first one that we see, we are warned about. We are in danger. We are warned about what suffering and doubt can do. Suffering and doubt. And we could say it this way, like even mature Christians will struggle with doubt, especially, listen, especially in seasons 
of suffering in isolation. And, and so the first, like, or, or maybe we could say it another way, where we could say it like this, suffering in isolation can erode even the strongest of faith. And so verse 2, take a look at it. It says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Jesus, sent word to Jesus and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Like what we see there is John the Baptist is looking at Jesus, he's looking at his circumstances, and we know the story, he's about to be killed, and he's saying like, are you really the one? Are you the promised Messiah of God, the king who came to rule the earth, the king who is coming to set up a new kingdom that is an upside down kingdom that looks nothing like the world's kingdom at all, you know, where the world brings death, you bring life, where the world brings despair and lying, you bring truth. And hope, are you that king or should we look for another? Like we see doubt. We see suffering. He's in prison. We see suffering and doubt. And this suffering is not because, like the absence of information, it's not because John the Baptist didn't know anything about Jesus or that John the Baptist hadn't experienced much with Jesus. Like like think about John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist knew Jesus. John the Baptist was the first to say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist baptized Jesus out in the open in front of everyone, and he persisted. He's like, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And, John, and Jesus was like, listen, this is for righteousness sake. And so he's like, okay, I'll baptize you. So he baptizes him, And as he's coming out of the water, it says that the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and rests upon him. Something happened where people were like, well, that was cool. Who's next? I mean, something happened. And then there was a voice confirming it, saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Like John the Baptist had a lot of information about Jesus and experienced a lot with Jesus. Like, that is some front row VIP stuff. And yet, what do we see here? We see that John the Baptist had suffered just another loss and found himself isolated in prison. And suddenly he's sending word because he's like, I've got some doubts. I've got some doubts. And this wasn't the first time he encountered, like, loss. Like, if you know the story at all, in John chapter 3, what happens when, after he baptizes Jesus, Jesus' ministry starts to grow, and John the Baptist's little movement starts to shrink, and his disciples got upset about it. And so they come, and like, hey, man, this Jesus guy who he baptized, he's taken all our people. And he says this famous line in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He had already suffered loss And he was sustained through it. But all of a sudden, he's experiencing more loss. He's suffering in jail for proclaiming the truth. He's isolated with his sufferings. And doubt is growing in his heart. Like, have you ever experienced doubt? 
Like you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but suddenly like crisis hits and you start to experience the goodness of God. Or, or maybe you start to experience like doubt about the care of God or, or, or the power of God. Have you ever said something like this? Man, if God really loved me, it wouldn't be like this. My life wouldn't be here. See, John the Baptist, man, he struggled with doubt. You know, it, this, it, the first two verses we see, his disciples came with John's questions. And so at the very least, it means they had some doubt too. So like John looks to his friends. He's like, man, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And they're like, yeah, man, it's not how it's supposed to be. But then they take his question to Jesus. And like you can see this like, hey, John's still in prison. Are you really the one? And so I'm, I'm going to go on, on a limb here. If we can apply this to John the Baptist, that we're in da- he was in danger of suffering and isolation and it causing doubt. That his disciple, like his students, best students, carried the same question that they struggled with doubt. I'm going to go on a limb and say, that's probably all of us, because I took a poll among your pastors. Ethan has struggled with doubt. I have struggled with doubt. Gary has struggled with doubt. Lord, help us all. We see right here, John the Baptist. I didn't didn't see my life looking like this. I didn't see this happening. Like, is this real? Are you real? Is this where we're supposed to be? And so, like, it leads us to two questions. Like, one question would be this. Like, you know, for those, like, John the Baptist position, like, what should you do when you struggle with doubt? And, like, this is what I'm telling you. You should name your doubt. Give a name to it. Because a lot of times, if we don't work hard with it, we have this very specific feeling of doubt, but we haven't actually said what's causing it. So give name to it. Name the suffering that's associated with it or in your life. Get out of isolation and hold it up to Jesus. Or, or what if you're in, like, you know, Team John the Baptist position, like his students? What should you do when you see someone you care about struggling in isolation with doubt? Like, the same things. Like, go to them. Help them name the doubt. Name the suffering. Get out of isolation and help them hold it up to Jesus. You know, I've recently... Um, uh, been asked actually by several people all at once. Um, not all at once. They didn't all come up and be like, hey, uh, but several different people just kind of in a recent uh, short period of time where they'll say, hey, do you know about so and so? I just haven't seen them. And I'm always like, man, if they are on your heart, you need to reach out to them. Like, you need to remind them that in isolation, our doubts will grow and they will multiply. And if no one else is there to press against them, like, it will seem very reasonable because you haven't spoken it out loud. Like, have you ever entered into an argument where you're like, hey, I've been keeping track of some things and there's something wrong with you. And then you start to speak it out loud and you have the moment of like, oh no, man, I'm the problem here, you know? And you're like, uh, but then you got to decide, either humble, like, hey, I think maybe I'm the problem, or you just double down. You're like, uh, I'm out of here, you know? I mean, and so like, like this, like if someone is in your heart, you need to go and remind them that you will not overcome suffering and doubt all alone with your favorite podcast and a bag of chips. No chips will do it. No chips will substitute the people of God. 
the regular reminder of what we say to our brothers and sisters of he's worthy, he's worthy. No one else can open the scroll. I've read revelations. Only Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, is worthy. Nothing else is worthy of your life. We need to be reminded of that regularly. But the first thing that we see is we are warned about the dangers of suffering, a doubt, especially in isolation. Mature Christians, even they struggle with doubt. Number two, we are warned about offenses and blindness. Even mature Christians will be offended by by Jesus. And so look in verse 4. Um, it's going to tell us that Jesus will offend even giants of the faith like John the Baptist. Like offense can lead you to two directions. It can lead you to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from the church, or it can lead you into a deeper abiding joy in faith. When you realize that you are not the holder of your faith, you are not the holder of everything that is right, your discernment is not above God's, that you have a God who has discernment about humanity and the brokenness that's actually bigger than yours. And so look at this, verse 5, it says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, And the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Like, underline that one for John. That's a big deal. Uh, And the poor have good news preached to them. And so what you have is John is going to be reminded of what the scriptures have said. John is going to be pointed to the the Old Testament. He's going to be pointed to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. So just listen to these verses. They'll be up on the screen, but listen to what it says. And so this is Isaiah looking ahead, like a thousand years before Jesus, looking ahead and saying the Messiah is going to come and it's going to look a certain way. And this is what it looks like. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals. Where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And then look at verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And, And so this is saying, Jesus is applying himself to this. He's saying, I am the way to holiness. I I am the the open door to the least of humanity, to everyone else who would be passed by, the the people who may not offer you something like financially or socially. I'm open to them. You can walk on this path of faith. You don't even have to be smart to do it. Just look at me and trust and obey. You don't have to see the end from the beginning because I see the end from the beginning. Jesus is saying, I'm the way to holiness. But then look at Isaiah 61. It'll be up on the screen. You can write it down if you want to look at it later. But Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, it says, 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This was Jesus' opening line to ministry when he opened the scroll in his hometown. And so he read this and said, yeah, this is all about me. And they didn't like it, okay? They didn't like it. So here it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now just, I want to look at one, I want to look at two phrases. I, I, I say, I'm going to look at one phrase and I always lie to you. It's always a lie. But like where it says, opening of the prisons to those who are bound. Like, do you think that might have been a moment where Jesus says, look at all these things, and then John's recounting the great words of Isaiah, and he says, even the prison at which I am bound right now, one day, the year of the Lord, the new kingdom of God will be established in such a way that these bars can't hold me any longer. But then that phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, that phrase also comes from the year of, of Jubilee. It comes from Leviticus 25, where roughly describes this. Every 50 years in the life of Israel, Israel was supposed to let all captives free, return all debts, ancestral lands. Israel is supposed to have a once-generational do-over, start all over. Like, think about what that would do just for humanity, that, that no matter how bad your mom and dad messed up, they gambled it all away. Within your lifetime, there would be this do-over where you could start all over, that you wouldn't be crushed by the liabilities of your fathers. Israel never did it. But Jesus is saying, I am the year of Jubilee. Jesus is saying, I am the one great do-over for all of humanity. Jesus is saying, I am the eternal reset for all inherited losses that you might be imprisoned with. One day they will have no bound on you. Jesus is saying a lot. Now, that, that, that's the historical redemptive point of what he's saying. But let's just look on the surface. Jesus is saying, John, Look who I'm ministering to. I'm ministering to the blind and the lepers and the deaf and the poor. I'm, I have time for them. The nobodies that most people would pass over are getting God's attention, God's affection. They're getting God's ear and his time. Now, now look at the next statement, verse 6. It says, and blessed is the one who is not afraid by me. Now, th this doesn't say like, and blessed is the one who, who, who never gets offended because I shouldn't offend them because I'm Jesus. I'm kind of a big deal. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say I'm Jesus. I never do anything wrong. How dare you get offended? It actually is saying like, blessed is the one who doesn't get so offended that they just walk away. He's saying, John, don't let your offense, I know, I know that you are hurt and offended. I know that you are suffering. I know this is unjust. I know that you shouldn't be in jail. There is no law that should put you in jail. And I know you're there and I know you're hurt and I know you're, you're just, I know it's producing doubt. Don't let the offense of my plan be so much that you just walk away. 
But this tells us something that we need to know. Jesus will offend you. The scriptures will offend you. The scriptures will tell you to forgive people who you never thought deserved to be forgiven. The scriptures will say crazy things like that, that you should forgive the same person for the same offense every few minutes of the day. And that doesn't mean that you give them the same trust or access if they've hurt you, but it means that there's a place where you say, I won't use their past to condemn them in such a way that chokes the life out of them. The scriptures will offend you. Jesus will offend you. And what, what this is saying is, but if you can get beyond the offense, if you can hold the level of the offense that's in your life and just say, I don't get this, I don't understand it, but I'll hold it in trust and faith that you're actually doing something because you're good. If you'll hold that, it will offend you, but it will also give you more than you ever dreamed possible. Don't let suffering metastasize into an uncontrollable bitterness in isolation. Bring your complaints to Jesus, just like John the Baptist did. And what does John the Baptist actually get from Jesus? Jesus doesn't go break him out of jail. He doesn't go like mission impossible on this deal. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're going to be released in two days. John died in prison. What did he say? He said, John, look beyond your circumstances. Look at what else the kingdom of God is doing. I know that might be of little consequence right now, but look beyond what's going on right now. Look at the poor. Look at the blind. Look at the mute. Look at the lame. Look beyond yourself. Look what else the kingdom of God is doing. Would it be worth, would it be worth your life if the part that you played in the kingdom of God felt small and unseen, but God was doing something incredible all around you and somehow there's a spiritual connection that he's going to say, good and well done, my faithful servant, would that be worth it? Or would the offense be too much? And look at verses 7 through 14, just kind of end this off. I just want to really, not, not me, these are Jesus' words. He wants to really drive this home, the danger of the offense from God, because this is not just like anyone. This is John the Baptist, and he's going to say this is so much more than just what you think. And so he's going to explain who John the Baptist is, who's struggling with doubt, who's been offended by Jesus and thinking, like, are you really the one? Look at this. It says in verse 7, it says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Remember what he just quoted in verse 61, or Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 35, a way of righteousness, who prepare a way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
From the day of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence takes it by force. Verse 13. For all the prophets and the laws prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is come. He who has ears, let him hear. Even spiritual giants suffer doubt. Even spiritual giants are offended by Jesus. Pick up the Bible, find a name in it, and you're going to find at some point they were offended and had doubts and they were hurt. And so if you sense doubt in your life, don't take that as a sense of like, man, I'm, I'm forgotten by God or anything. Hold that doubt up to God. Suffering and isolation, it's a warning, it brings doubt. We will be offended by God and his plan. It's a warning, it can bring doubt. But we're also warned about an insatiable expectation in our souls. Every human will find an unquenchable expectation inside of themselves that cannot be satisfied in this life. And so look at the the picture that Jesus gives in verse 16. So he stops. He said, this is John the Baptist. Even John the Baptist is suffering. He says, John the Baptist, look beyond your circumstances. Look to what is happening in the kingdom of God. Look in this world. And then he gives this parable. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? Now, the the word generation can mean numbered generation, but it can also mean like people. It can also mean even broader than that, like humanity or humankind. Like it can mean like, what can I compare all of humanity with? What can I compare the human condition to? What will tell us what it's like? And he's going to go on and he's going to say, within every human heart, there is this insatiable lust to be in control of their circumstances. Within every human heart, there is a desperate want to decide what is best for me. Within every human heart, there's a want to say, I get to choose. If I do this, I get that. And so listen to how he describes it. He says, it is like humanity, the human condition. We are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. And so this is it's super weird. You're like, I don't even understand. I don't even know what a dirge is. But it, it's saying that like kids mimic, like they play what they see. Like, uh, I mean, you know, Cruz, when he was growing up, he, uh, you know, we have like, I'm, you know, I made like a little kitchen set for the kids one Christmas. Uh, I had to keep upping the ante, you know, and, it, and either not necessarily harder. Then I made like bow and arrows. I mean, not real bow and arrows, but, you know, I made that one Christmas. And then I made a potato cannon. Kenzie was a little bit against that, but we got one. Um, but we keep, you know, kids play what they see. So kids like to play food because they see mom and dad cook food. Or, or, or they like to mimic, like, you know, Liv was our most motherly kid. Like, she loved to, like, mother her stuffed animals and her baby dolls. And then when she got a baby brother, that was, like, the best thing she ever had. Like, when she was just, like, tiny, she picked up Cruz and, like, carrying him over to help us. And, and we're like, God, oh, don't drop him. He's a baby. Um, and so they love to mimic what they see. At one, at one point, Liv 
grab Kinsey's breast pump because, you know, she was nursing and puts it up and goes, psh, psh, psh. They mimic what they see. And so the question is, like, what is it they see here? If you lived in town, you would see two major processions come through. You would see a wedding procession come through with happy music where people are dancing, and you would see funeral processions come through with sad music and people weeping, people mourning, people crying. And so they would make believe these two things. And so it's saying, hey, you want to play? What, what game do you want to play? You want to play wedding? Then let's play something happy. And let's dance around and let's, let's get a bride and a groom and someone to stand between them and act like they're married and I'll be embarrassed and I'll laugh and now it's your turn. Or, or they'd play funeral. I mean, you could, you could see it and let's, let's play something sad and we'll carry someone you know, through and we'll, we'll cry and we'll make a big deal about it. And so they mimic what they see. And what it's saying is like, listen, you're like a kid who says, oh, you want to play wedding? I don't want to play wedding. Wedding's stupid. Oh, you want to play? You, you, you want to play funeral? I don't want to play funeral. Funeral's stupid. So anything from jubilee and happiness to sadness and lament, I don't want to play anything you're going to play because the problem is not what we're playing. The problem is I don't have the flute. I want to decide. I want to decide. And so we're warned about this insatiable thing in our souls that's not really about even what's going on. It's about that I didn't decide that it's going on. It's a warning about the human condition. And so then Jesus gives a real example. He doesn't just look at kids and say, look at this. They're playing this. And it's just like what's happening in our hearts. He says, look at what's happened before you. Look at verse 18. He says, for John came eating, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, I came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so he looks, and probably at this moment, looks at the religious leaders, and he says, Look, John the Baptist came following all the rules and speaking hard against sin. And you said, man, that's just too pious. I don't want anything to do with that. And he says, and then, then I came and I eat and I drink. I mean, I turn water into wine at weddings. Like I came doing this and you call me a drunk. And he's like, it's not about drinking. It's not about not drinking. It's about you don't have the flute. You don't have the flute. You don't get to decide. There's this insatiable desire in our hearts of I should get to decide what my life is like. If I do this, you owe me that. And you have John the Baptist suddenly find that his life doesn't look anything like what he thought. And it brought doubts and his suffering. But he went and he asked Jesus. And what did he find? He found a friend. See, when suffering starts to settle in and you start to get isolated and you start to pull away, like what do you need? You need a friend who will come alongside you. You need a friend who will stand between you and the Lord and try to hold that together. You need a friend who will confront you. 
I don't know if you, uh, growing up, if you were ever in a fight, um, most people, when they get in a fight, they're really just hopeful that a friend will jump in and, like, break it up. So you can say, oh, yeah, I mean, I was going to fight him, but it didn't work. I mean, that's what most, most guys want. They don't actually want to fight. Um, what if our enemy is an embitterness that will never be satisfied or never corrected no matter how many things we get that we want? What if our enemy is so deep and so dark that all we can do is get lost inside of it and forget which way is up? What if the addiction of sin is so crippling and holding? What do we need? Like, like we, we look at it, like if you've ever seen someone struggle with addiction, like they do try to fight. They, they do try to fight. They say things like, man, I'm never going to do that again. Or they say, man, I'll never let it go that far. They say all kinds of things. But, and they do try to fight, but it's never enough. You need a friend to stand in between you and that foe. And that is exactly what God did in the person of Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus quotes his enemies They said, they call me a friend of sinner, and that is exactly what I am. What was meant to defame the character of Jesus is one of the most precious truths that we have about Jesus. Jesus came to befriend sinners like me. Jesus came to befriend the people who are too burdensome for friends. He came for the wretched, the lame, the blind, the poor. He came for those that society is going to naturally push out. But there's another like category, not, not this physical category. He came for those who find this unsatisfiableness in them. He came for those who are just embittered. He came for the hurt who have become too prickly to handle. He came for the overlooked and the despised. Jesus came for those who see the problem of their human condition They see it in their hearts. And he came to be their friend. He entered in to put his arm around them, to confront them, to reason with them. He came to be the friend who truly sees them, truly sees you, but never raises an eyebrow of disgust at what he sees. He came to be the friend that can enter into the loneliness of your soul that no one else can. But it's more than that. Jesus didn't just come so we could enjoy friendship with him. Jesus enjoys friendship with you. This is not that I'm all alone at the lunch table and someone just pities me enough to endure me. This is God who left the courts of heaven to be close to you because there is something that brings his heart of the triune God joy because he created you in his image. And there's something about it that he's saying, the kingdom of God lacks. I have to go to my friend. From Gentle and Lowly, Richard Sibbs gets quoted and he says this. He's a Puritan. He says, in friendship... There is a mutual consent, a union of judgment and affections. There is a mutual sympathy in the good and the ill of one another. There is liberty, which is the life of friendship. There is a free intercourse between friends, a free opening of secrets. So here Christ opens his secrets to us and we to him. 
In friendship, there is a mutual solace, a comfort of one another, if that could be. Christ delights himself in the love to the church, and his church delights herself in her love to Christ. In friendship, there is a mutual honor and respect for one another. How can that even be? When God wanted you to know something about the heart of God, he sent Jesus and he said, I'm a friend of sinners. And I want you to think, like, what do you do with your friends? A lot of times you get meals with them. Every week when we come to the table, we're reminded of this truth that we bring what we have to the table, but everything at the table is provided. We come because Jesus, the friend of sinners, made a seat for us and he calls us friend. The way we take communion is we either move forward and what happens is a piece of bread is torn away for us and it's dipped into the wine and then it's handed to us and a proclamation is made that this is the body and blood of Jesus for you. Or we have another option, a gluten-free option in the back at the information table with individual cups and it has grape juice and a gluten-free cracker. But we remember ourselves, we move to a direction, we move to a table because the friendship of God is made possible through the person of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Lord, we, uh, Lord, we, man, we look at you, and if we accept that you're our friend, we accept it as, you, I accept it as like this pitiful thing of like, you're like, well, I mean, I recruited him to my team, so I gotta sit by him. And Lord, when you answered John the Baptist, you knew he was suffering, you knew he was struggling, and you just said, look around you. God is befriending the people that no one else will. Lord, let us not be turned away by the offense of you. Let us not give up because the offense of Scripture let us hold on. Let us hold fast to a promise that we've been given through the person of Jesus. And Lord, let us be honest. If there is a God who is greater than us in everything, he's going to disagree with us. So Father, Lord, we love you. And we're thankful for the friendship that we can have with you in the person of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.